with him during his preparations. And uh, as that last verse said, give us ears to hear. Amen. Would you like this? Good morning, everybody. The cost of discipleship. It's been interesting over this month of August, we've been looking at the parables of Jesus uh, told throughout his ministry. We've already looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the light under a bushel, the parable of the sower, and this one contains three, possibly, of the lesser-known parables. But before we look at the parables, let's just turn firstly to the opening words of that chapter in Luke, where it contains really quite startling words. I'll just go through it again. Jesus turns to the crowd and says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate their father and mother, their spouse, their children, their brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, then they cannot be my disciple. Was this Jesus caught on a bad day? What on earth was Jesus thinking, saying words like this? This is God incarnate, the God of love talking, and yet here he appears to be preaching hatred. Was this a complete aberration on the part of Jesus? We've all heard of Muslim preachers of hatred, but isn't Christ meant to be all about love and forgiveness? So why is he talking about hatred? Well, they are strong words indeed from Jesus, and I believe they're intended to shock and challenge us. Jesus meant them to be shocking, jolting, provoking real listening. After all, hate is not a neutral word, is it? So what does Jesus mean by telling us that we must hate our closest family, members and even ourselves if we want to be committed to Jesus? I think what he's saying is he's contrasting our allegiance to him in the strongest possible way. No earthly tie, however close, must take precedence over our allegiance to and obedience of Jesus. He is number one. No other person even comes close. Now this is no excuse to treat family members shabbily or with disrespect, I'll quickly add. Our responsibilities to and for our families still remain. But it does mean that following Jesus is to take first priority, even if at times it is painful, even if at times it's difficult, and even if at times we're misunderstood by doing so. To truly follow Jesus Christ, we must consider the cost and put him above everything else. Salvation is both absolutely free and yet it costs you your very life. You receive it freely at no expense to you, but once you receive it, you have just committed everything you have everything you are, to Jesus Christ. Hold on a minute, Martin. 
how can something be both free and costly at the same time? Well, this is where I give you my little parable, my little illustration. So I want you to imagine for a moment that I have a, a burning desire to climb Mount Everest. I, I don't, I hasten to add. I think you have to be slightly mad to do so. But I've checked the costs of climbing Mount Everest. Currently the costs are about 58 to £60,000. Now I don't have that kind of spare money. But suppose a wealthy businessman heard of my burning desire to climb Mount Everest and offers to pay for the entire expedition. He's willing to buy all the expensive clothing and gear and oxygen tanks. He's going to pay for all the necessary permits and licences. He pay for all the transportation costs, the guides and all the necessary training. For me it's totally free. But if I accept his offer, I've just committed myself to months of difficult training and arduous effort. It could even cost me my life. It's free, yet very costly. Jesus Christ freely offers the water of life to everyone who thirsts. But we need to understand that when we receive his free offer, we are no longer our own. We've been bought with a price. To truly follow Jesus Christ, we must consider the cost and not follow him superficially, only to turn away when things get tough. And Jesus continues by saying, anyone who does not carry their own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So what does it mean to carry your own cross? Carrying your own cross means that we must accept the death of our own self-directed life. We must die to ourselves daily and be willing to face whatever physical, emotional or social persecution that ensues in order to follow Jesus. Now each month I get the um, Christianity magazine and um, I've got the September edition already and there's some great articles in this magazine so if you fancy subscribing I thoroughly recommend it. But in that magazine it, uh, it talks about God inviting us to make his, his purposes our purposes. God at the very centre of our lives. It's about discovering that the good life of God is the life given away. The call to follow Jesus is not a call to give our lives to the Western view of Christianity with the occasional devotional add-on. It's a call, rather, to become whole life disciples and stewards of Jesus' message. It's not to be found in seeking life, but in giving our lives away. If we try to do this, then I think it's going to free us to experiment with some of the biblical values of hospitality, community and celebration, instead of simply settling for the Western values of affluence, individualism and status. Jesus spoke of a cross to get the people in the crowd to think through their enthusiasm for him. 
He encouraged those that were superficial either to go deeper or to turn back. Being a disciple demands full commitment. Nothing less will do. Jesus knew that some of those people in the crowd that were getting so enthusiastic were not thinking through their commitment. Some of those people in the crowd thought perhaps Jesus might be the one to overthrow the occupying Roman army and governance of their country. Jesus also knew that some of the crowd of followers would, in the not too distant future, one minute be singing his praises, shouting words like, Hosanna to the King of Kings! But he also knew that the same people the next minute would be shouting, Crucify him! Jesus also knew that even his own specially chosen disciples would fail him at the crucial testing point. So what about ourselves? Have we already failed him? We all need to think through our commitment to Jesus. Jesus goes on in the passage from Luke 14 to give two parables by way of illustration of his point. The first one is about the person who wants to build a tower. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish it. And the second parable comes immediately after the tower building one and it's about a king planning to go to war. Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Now, I'm the first one to admit I have many faults and one of them is probably the utter inability to plan things ahead. I'm the sort of person who'd much rather just get on and try things and see how it all turns out. Whereas in contrast, Fiona, my wife, loves a plan. She loves the list, loves the detail. But for me, four small words that will strike me with absolute fear are when my wife says, let's make a plan. Let's make a list. I think I did once jokingly say, have you got a plan to cross the road? And I think the response was no, but I've got a plan to shove you in front of the next bus that comes along. In fact, I remember when Jason and uh, Claire Stonia were here in July from uh, Mechanics for Africa. Uh, Jason says that he's the person who's capable of just having that long-term view. He's the visionary type of person. Uh, he knew where MFA needed to be in, say, two or three years' time. But he needs someone like Claire, who's the detailed person, to work out how to get from A to B different personality types, you see. They're, they're very interesting, aren't they, personalities? That some years ago in this church we had a professional trainer who came in 
and over a number of weeks uh, we undertook the Myers-Briggs personality testing which I suspect many of you have done in your workplace or certainly you've heard about. Um, Now these tests look at all sorts of things to do with your personality like whether you're an extrovert or you're naturally introvert whether in your decision-making abilities you're a thinking type of person or one who prefers to use more sort of feeling, whether your perceiving functions are more likely to be based on sensing or tendentially more on intuition and so on and so forth. But what was striking about all of that was at the end of the analysis the trainer got us to stand out in the back hall there on a grid laid out on the floor and each person had to stand in the box that most represented their key personality traits. And it was interesting because by doing so, it immediately became obvious that, particularly with couples, that very often married couples would be standing in completely opposing boxes. And they say opposites attract. So, for example, I was in the, strangely, in the introvert box, whereas going as the the extrovert, um, I'd be... Fiona would be in the planning and detail box and I'd be in the sort of just get on and do it box. So I guess I wouldn't fare very well in the tower building and the king planning to go to war uh, scenario. But the point is that Jesus is saying, you know, following me is not just a sort of dip your toes in the water type of commitment and then sort of, uh, okay, that's enough for me and I'll just run back up the beach. It's it has a cost attached to it and he says this throughout his ministry in fact in Matthew chapter 8 verse 21 to 22 we get another surprising response from Jesus to one of his disciples one of his disciples had said to him about following him and he said first of all Lord suffer me first to go and bury my father and Jesus' response is follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Another shocking response from Jesus. But isn't it the right thing to do, the tender, sweet thing to do for the disciple to say, look, Lord, allow me first to go and bury my father. Isn't that fine? Isn't that noble? How commendable? How filial? And yet, the answer of the Lord seems so unsympathetic. It's chilling almost. It's without understanding. It's without kindness and compassion. For the Lord said to him, let the dead bury their dead. You follow me. But you see, the reply of our Lord is a particular answer for a particular kind of person that you'll find in every age and in every generation. There are always those that say, Lord, I will follow you presently. Lord, you know my devotion to you is as high as the heaven and deep as life, but first, Lord, I've got my children to raise. Oh, then I've got to see to my work commitments. But first, Lord, I must accept this challenge. But first, Lord, I must make this call. But first, Lord, I must just make some more money. But first, Lord, I must just make these arrangements. But first, Lord, I have other commitments. They have a reluctant obedience. They have a mixed answer. Suffer me first, Lord, and then, and then I will follow you to the death. 
the call of the master is always exclusive, it's relevant, it's always urgent, it's always present, it's always immediate and it's now. We can all be slaves of amenities in many of the social relationships in life and there are many, many things in which we can delay in person to person, friend to friend, business to business but when the time comes for a person to make a commitment to Christ it is to be unreserved and immediate and now. Now this church is blessed with people who have been and are still willing to respond to the call of Jesus to serve. But perhaps when we hear that next appeal we need you in this ministry, we need you in this task, we need you in this assignment. Don't respond by making excuses. Don't say to yourself, well I'm going to do it but not now, not now. The cost of discipleship, Jesus says, you, 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 follow me now. Jesus is reminding us in these parables to seriously consider the cost of commitment, the commitment to Jesus. Following Christ does not always mean a trouble-free life of peace and joy. You may have to give up some of your time, your social status or your wealth. Remember the rich merchant who asked Jesus what he must do to follow him? Jesus said, go, sell everything you have. And the merchant went away very sad because to the rich merchant, his riches and wealth meant more to him than his devotion to God. Being a disciple of Christ means... It demands our utmost attention. It demands utmost seriousness and commitment. Discipleship will figure in every aspect of your life. The will of God will have to be first in your priority. Halfway measures are not adequate. At various times throughout Jesus' ministry he presented uh, the cost of discipleship in different ways. In Luke chapter 5 we read about those that he called who were fishermen. He said, and as soon as they landed, uh, they left everything and followed Jesus. Luke chapter 5, verse 27 to 28. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. In Mark chapter 10, verse 21 to 22, again we read of that parable, or not the parable, the um, rich merchant that I mentioned earlier on. Jesus says, One thing you lack, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Discipleship comes at a cost. But what about us? Have we watered down and diluted the biblical teaching on discipleship so as not to offend anyone? Perhaps unconsciously we've adapted to the ways of the world to such an extent 
that the biblical truth has become diluted. Perhaps we've bought into the marketplace mentality of the world in which we live that we've come to think of Christian discipleship and church membership as one and the same thing. That all you have to be to be a disciple of Christ is to join the church, come to worship every once in a while and occasionally throw a few coins in the offering plate. Jesus continues in Luke 14 verse 34 to say, Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's not fit for the soil, nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. In Jesus' day, salt was considered an essential of life. It was used for both flavouring and preservation. And in those days, in the region of the Holy Land, salt was obtained by evaporation of the salt crystals from the Dead Sea. The drying process is crucial. If it's not done properly, then it's possible for all the sodium chloride to be leached out and all that is left would become stale and useless. Sometimes unscrupulous traders would sell bags of salt with the top two inches of genuine salt and the rest of the bag just a load of useless minerals. The essence washed out. Have we so conformed to the ways of the world around us that the essence of Christ in our lives has been washed out? Now here's a big crucial question. If you were to be arrested and put on trial accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would there be enough evidence from our lives to prove beyond reasonable doubt that we're strong disciples of Christ? Jesus finishes by saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. God doesn't want us to be just Sunday-only Christians. God doesn't want us to be faddish, lifestyle-choice Christians. God doesn't want us to be a Christian when it suits us. God doesn't want lukewarm Christians. Remember, as true disciples of Christ, men and women can be made extraordinary through the grace of God and the power of his Holy Spirit. The grace of God is a free gift for us, but in order to receive that free gift of grace, God paid very dearly by the sacrifice of his only Son, Jesus Christ. But even though the grace of God is freely given, in return, we must treat it with respect and commitment. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, wrote a book on the cost of discipleship and in that book he calls this costly grace. He said, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all he has. It is the pearl of great price for which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye that causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ 
at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Jesus says, whoever wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Thank you, Martin. Let's pray.